Hey everybody, this is Eric Krasno and you're listening to the Plus One Podcast. I want to thank everyone for tuning in and everyone that's been showing love online and following us on Instagram, sending me messages and whatnot. It's been great to spend time with all the musicians that I've had on the show. Last week's episode with Derek Trucks was really special and it was cool to really get some insight into his development as an artist and as a player. We also got to speak a little bit on a few of the musicians we lost in the past few years that were very impactful on his life and mine. Kofi Burbridge, Colonel Bruce Hampton, and Yanrinko Scott. And since then, I've actually been listening back to some of the live shows where I was in the Tedeschi Trucks band playing bass and listening to Kofi, and I went back and checked out some of Colonel Bruce's music that I hadn't heard in a while in the Derek Trucks band with Yanrinko Scott. And uh, I've actually put together a playlist that goes along with the episode. And actually from here on out, we're going to have playlists available with each episode of the Plus One Show. You'll be able to find those in the description underneath uh, the episode in Spotify. And then I'm also going to make them available on my site, erickrasner.com. I'd also like to talk quickly about another friend of ours that we lost in 2019, Mr. Neil Casal. If you've been listening to this show, I'm sure you've heard his name quite a bit. Not only a great guitarist, but an amazing singer-songwriter. My good friends Jim Scott, Gary Waldman, and Dave Schools are putting together an album called Highway Butterfly, The Songs of Neil Casal. And I got to play on the album along with Marcus King, and they actually have a song out now that's with Billy Strings along with Circles Around the Sun uh, that just premiered, and they're launching this Neil Casal Foundation, which is a nonprofit that aims to put musical instruments with lessons on how to play them into the hands of children. It provides mental health support for artists via the Music Cares and Backline organizations. I'd also like to mention another charity that I'm working with called Song Aid. Actually, just recorded a song a few weeks ago with a guy named Otis McDonald, an incredible musician from the Bay Area. And we cut a Bob Dylan song called The Man in Me. All proceeds from the song are going to the NAACP to fight inequality and racial injustice. You can find our version of The Man in Me on Spotify and any other streaming service. I also want to let everybody know about my friends at headcount.org. A lot of people are confused about voting right now, how to get their absentee ballots. You can find it all right there. They've got all the information. They can make it really easy. Everybody that's listening, please, please vote. We really, really need to make some change right now, and we need everyone to get out to the polls and vote. Lastly, I'd like to thank Osiris Media. They helped me put this podcast together, and they create a lot of great content, so go over to osirispod.com and check them out. Okay, so our guest today is somebody that I've been a fan of a really, really long time. Uh, I was really, really fortunate to have him on the show. He's the type of artist that just spans so many different job titles. He's one of those guys that's just created a lane that's completely his own. He's an incredible drummer, but also a producer, a musicologist. I mean, the guy knows everything about every era of music. I feel like he knows the liner notes of every album by heart when I speak with him. He's a best-selling author. He's a DJ. He's the leader of the band The Roots, which is the house band for The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. He's been a part of so many amazing albums. When I put the playlist together for this episode, it was basically a best of of my 20s. He worked with Common, Jay Dilla, 
Erica Badu, Jill Scott. Not only did he work with these artists, he helped usher in this whole era of music that really inspired me and so many other musicians and producers. We had so much to cover that we actually had to split this interview into two sections. So without further ado, I'd like to welcome today's plus one, Amir Questlove Thompson. You know, when I was a kid, I used to make pretend that uh, I had my own radio station. Yeah. So, you know, me DJing every night is almost like that's this. Like I've been prepping for this all my life. Like, <laughs> yeah. Pretend that I had a radio station. Like from like from like zero to nine, what I do every night for on the internet is what I was just doing normally, like pretending I had an audience, making tape recordings, using my dad's microphones and his things and read the news reports and all that stuff, like my my own pretend radio station. Um, Yeah, I mean, I feel like musicians in general, but especially you were like meant for this, to thrive in in these times. Um, Yeah, it's just a shock, man. It's it's crazy. And it feels like the weird, and the thing is, is that, you know, everyone's reaching out like already, like what I like about it is how pirate radio and just how it feels natural now. And my fear is that someone's going to make that offer and then it turns professional and then it's not special anymore. No, I dig how like cable access shit is looking right now too. Exactly. (laughs) Like I've been doing shit out of my studio too, where like I'm turning, you know, I'm all psychedelic and I'm looking like Wayne's Worldy and shit. Um, But I think that's cool. I'm I'm seeing all these people do their own shows and and um, watching all these ideas unfold, and uh, it's been cool. It's it's also been interesting watching them evolve. Even your stuff, like the sound gets better, and then you add this little element, and you add that element. Yeah, uh, I'll say yeah. that for, you know, in the very beginning, it was literally just my iPhone and, you know, you guys hearing live what my, you know, what yeah, my yeah. iPhone was doing. I heard and it change. That's an ad that I sent you a message. I was like, Owie, what's your input? Because I've been trying to figure out the same thing. Oh, like, do the same yeah. thing. Yeah, but yeah. the difference, the weird thing is that uh, my um, my tour manager, Ruan, yeah. um, is secretly like just mental level genius and prepared. Like I now realize that, you know, he was super he was he was overqualified to be a tour manager like this guy has been an engineer this guy is a tech genius this guy has directed videos this guy has like done everything and so he's he and i are both using everything we ever learned in our life to make this happen so i'll say like night after night we'll just um I mean, thank God for B&H and delivery. Right, right. Um, Yeah, so every other night, it's a new piece of tech equipment that we need, you know, to make stuff happen. Um, I just discovered four nights ago, like, I use Serato technology. Yeah. 
And for some reason, I forgot for at least the last four to five years that you can also DJ videos. Right, right. And so once I discovered that fact, and, you know, like, I don't go anywhere in life without all 700 episodes of Soul Train with me. He was like, wait, do you have your Soul Trains with you? I was like, yeah. He's like, you know you can DJ your Soul Trains as the set. I was like, oh, dog, you should have never told yeah, me that. Yeah, that, so, that's, un- that's open in a whole whole other world. Right, right. So now it's, it's in the beginning, um, I was going to resign to the fact that, oh, well, I'm just going to, everything's going to stop. And I thought it was just going to be like meditation, silence, no creativity, none of these things. And actually, what winds up ha- what winds up happening, like for those that figure it out, you know, now is really a chance to reconfigure and for you to really get into the thing you always wanted to do, the things you you know, the things you love. The first fifteen days, um, slight confession, like you know, I've I've been quasi beat making um, using. You know, like very ancient equipment, right? Like right. the Akai 950 and the SB 1200, and you know, much 2000. But slight confession, like I never knew how to use any of the technology on my laptop, like making beats. Right. I've just been doing it super primitive, like the old way, the old module, and kind of sticking to the. You know, I stick to what I know. I never upgrade. Which I meant to to a fault. I still believe in that theory, like that sort of thing. But um, I I was like, all right, I'm gonna force myself to learn uh, technology. And it just so happens that Serato um, had just created a sample beta beta that they tested, and um, I love it. And so I've just been, at least before the DJ and the, the marathon DJ, I've been spending like five hours every day, like forcing myself, like you're going to teach yourself, get off your, get out of your comfort zone and teach yourself how to make beats using this technology, which was previously like my worst fear, right, right. Um, which is like not being as good or having to start all over again, like kick over your, your Jenga, um, sculpture and start all over again you know it's 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 actually uh freeing i mean i you know also acknowledge and understand that you know i'm in i'm in a somewhat fortunate position that i can have the time to sort of do that type of uh, exploration right um but you know for most people this is going to be a time period where you're going to be forced to like there's no there's no medium way uh, there's no middle ground or great ground like you're either going to thrive or you're not like there's no there's no getting out of this the same way that you came into this so yeah that's for sure um i've been determined already to just like anything that i've been procrastinating uh now now i know how to to operate equipment uh and i you know got way better at, at, at djing and exploring music uh 
and other areas too, like writing my book, yeah, cooking, all those things. Yeah, everybody's been cooking. That's been a whole. That's been like every. No, everybody's been eating. I, I, <laughs> I am. I am extremely proud. Like I, from the gate, I was determined not to be a victim of like uh, sort of Corona binge eating. Yeah. So yeah, man. Like I, I've taken off. 20 pounds already wow see i i I was bad at first and then i just started doing like a whole red health regimen and i'm like okay i'm gonna take this time because you know i always had the excuse of like i'm on the road it's hard to eat right and exercise on the road now i'm home i got no excuse so i'm trying to go for it now but at first it was just bad it was bad yeah no and it was tempting you know um you know my, my girlfriend and i are quarantined together yeah on a ranch in a uh, way up, up upstate, so um, you know I have to credit Grace that uh, you know just one she's not having that like she is she can she can throw a stare dart a stare at you <laughs> so you know there is no even that's if good, I wanted that's a good to, trait though in the in in a girlfriend. It, it is, man. And yeah. it's like, dog, I'm dreaming of like Lego waffles or whatever. Yeah. Nope. She ain't having it. So right, right. I'm 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 glad for that. Well, it's so. funny that you said procrastinating because you're pretty much the last person that I would think of um when I think of that word. Well, it's it's not that. It's just that um getting to that list. We all have that list that's like all these things we want to do, but you know, obviously the things at hand take over, you know? Like, I'll admit that I have short, uh, kind of like a short ADD attention span thing when it comes to, like, like it definitely be a thing of, like, what I'm supposed to do versus what gets done. Um, For instance, right now as we speak, um, I should be creating the brand new Tonight Show intro uh that's gonna air on Monday. Right. But then I will oh a bird. You know, and <laughs> like like that's the my version of that is like, okay, I'm gonna work on the record. Oh man, you know what? I'm gonna write a six hundred page book. I'm gonna right. work on my uh six book right now. Or a five like, hour DJ set tonight. Right, exactly. So it's it's I won't say procrastinate, but I'm like easily distracted to create other things. Trust me, for everything that I execute, there's yeah. like there's like three people waiting like, okay, so Mary, are you gonna turn in that song yet? Or do I have to you know, that sort of thing. So Well I have that that same issue, like bad. Um mm-hmm. but when I look at what you've done, like you've created this career that's so completely your own. You know what I mean? Like you, people, when they talk about you, there is no comparison really. It's just kind of like you've paved this, this thing, you know, like I tried to think of an intro and I was like, okay, um, started listing how I would credit, you know, what your title would be. And there was like 20 things. It was like drummer, DJ, producer, curator, tastemaker. I had obligatory music doc interviewee. 
Um, I had, <laughs> I had a historian, collector of like so many things. Every time I we I talk with you, you we we go down some rabbit hole. I remember watching Soul Trains for like three hours up in the studio one time, but that's it was like now that I can find a lot of them on YouTube, but. That mm-hmm. blew my mind. That heart. I think you filled my hard drive with them, and me and Nigel didn't sleep for like four days watching those. But uh, <laughs> I'm curious, like you know, what your home life as a kid and how, like, I know your dad was was a singer in a duop group, and your grandfather was in a gospel group. Um, mm-hmm. Was it music being played in your house? That is that like your first musical memories? Is it playing records in the house? I have very specific musical memories. Right. Um. The first one, the very first thing I remember um, is um, my sister washing, attempting to wash my hair and uh, soap getting in my eyes and it's stinging. I'll say that I'm, um, my guess is, I mean, I'm walking around, so I have to be two or three. Um, all I remember was, um, the stinging was overbearing. I'm running around screaming and, um, they're trying to hold me down. So at one point with, uh, an Afro full of soapy hair, I'm in the living room of my childhood home and they're like holding me down on the floor, trying to flush my eye out and I'm crying. And, um, there's a ride going on is on the stereo. And I remember that bass line from just like a baby. Yeah. So the whole time I'm just hearing the doom, 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 doom. And if you know the texture of sliding the family stones, just like a baby on there's a riot going on it. Like it's a very creepy, sad, ominous, um, very depressing song. And I remember that. And to this day, like, there's no time when that song comes on where I don't think of, like, my Aunt Karen and my sister and my dad and my mom, like, pinning me to the floor like a wrestler. Yeah. Saying, like, keep your eye open so we can flush your eye out. Right. Um, so that's my first musical memory. It's funny how, how music can kick off other senses. Like you hear it and you actually can start feeling or smelling the thing, the memory, you know, along with that. Yeah, music is literally just a um, a Polaroid. It's, it's, you know, it is synesthesia. Like for most people, synesthesia is like how a sound can make them think of a color. Right. That sort of thing. Um but it's always been that way for me, um, which is weird because, like, for a lot of people, um, you know, the joke of of when you get pulled over in your car and you turn the radio down, like, because no one wants to be terrorized to a soundtrack or to have those things. But um, even, like, my second memory, and I'm writing about this in, in, in uh, my book, people, I have a fear, I have a fear of modulations. Right. That I never share it with anyone. <laughs> okay. I have a fear of modulations that I never share with anyone. Um, I, I got into a, again, this involves a bathtub and running around in in the house. And all I know is that uh, Curtis Mayfield's doing Freddy's Dead on Soul Train. 
and I run past the the family radiator, and I burn my leg. Like that burn mark has been imprinted on my leg at least up until I was sixteen. Like that's how deep the the imprint was. The burn was the burn was devastating. Um, but I think my brain registered the part of Freddy's dead where it, Curtis Mayfield goes into the modulation in the middle where they yeah, go up yeah. uh, half a note with yeah. the horns. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, Classic. yeah, that particular memory has sort of set off a chamber of any time I hear modulation it gets scary for me. Not all the time. Like when Stevie Wonder keeps going up half a note on Golden Lady. Yeah, yeah. It's not like that. But like uh like Aretha Franklin's I'm in love, uh her cop her her uh cover of Bobby Womack's uh I'm in love. It came out in seventy four. Um things like that. Like I start getting creeped out. So right now, like in my book, I'm literally getting out Every association, like music is more of association than just like music, you know, like I love Supreme was punishment. No, my favorite things was punishment. Okay. You know, like I, I asked my parents for $4 so I can go get into May's, uh, juicy, juicy fruit 45. Oh yeah. Yeah was told not to get it that song's like someone i think my sister ratted me out like that song's nasty no yeah you know they were like strict christians in the 80s yeah and i brought it anyway and um so they took the record threw it in the trash and it was like for the next two weeks you're just gonna listen to jazz and so i had to listen to the entire john coltrane collection at least like the <laughs> nine records in my dad's record collection by the time I got to performing art school. I'll say that everyone has a gang situation once they get to high school. And it's no different even when you're creative. And when I got to when I got there, um, you know, the 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 blood side was like Joey D. Francesco and Christian McBride. Right. Because those guys were like traditional jazz people and they were like they were damn near seasoned veterans like the way that they are now they were that back then right they were seasoned i mean for god's sakes the second day of school miles davis came to our school wow to do a master class with joey chris and like the the older students i i came to i came there as a um a first time junior but because I didn't have history there, I had to basically, uh, you know, like the other students got first dibs for like first chair and all that stuff. So, I mean, the second day of school is Miles Davis. You know what I'm saying? Crazy. So that alone shows you the level of of intense, the intense atmosphere it was. So on one, one side, like don't even come near Joey and Chris, unless you're serious about your craft, you know, you know, these particular artists, you know, you're educated. So yeah, all those jazz punishments finally came in handy for me. 
because I knew that stuff because I hated that stuff when I was a kid. But now <laughs> it's like I got to use it to survive high school. And then on the other side, Kurt Rosenwinkle yeah. is like the blood is, is the crip side. You know what I'm saying? So Interesting. Rosenwinkle was like, he, he was sort of, you know, where, whereas Joey and Chris were like super like conservative and, and, and like traditionalists with their, with their music. Rosenwinkle was free. So he's like, yo man, like you, you need to know my Vishu orchestra and John McLaughlin and John Schofield. And you need to, you know, fuck all that Bob shit. Like you need to get into, you know, Miles's, uh, electric period and get to know that. And then, you know, later it's like, I'm a, I'm a hippie to some Frank Zappa and some beef heart and, you know, like prog rock stuff that I never knew that sort of thing. Right. Right. And like, I'm playing both. It's like that Richard Pryor joke where he's like, whatever side that was winning, that's the side I was on. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like you couldn't serve you couldn't you couldn't serve both sides. So it's like you know, I hang with Joey and Chris and learn traditional jazz, and then you know, Rosenwinkel might be in the other room, like working on a song and 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 twelve eight meter over, you know, like just some crazy Rosenwinkel esque. Uh, you know, he he was composing the way that he composes now even back in high school. And what were you listening to during this time? Like when you went home, what rec- what records were on the turntable? Well, it's like, okay, so I grew up in three record collector household. Okay. So yeah. my dad instantly uh, gravitated to the yacht rock of his day. <laughs> so he was into vocalist like he always listened to Nat King Cole yeah um he loved Carol King he loved vocalists he he loved pet sounds he loved you know right so right. anyone like he wasn't big on like uh like gospelized over singing that stuff like he liked straight ahead singers like people that had good vibrato and that's that sort of thing so that was his record collection but then my mom my mom would have been the equivalent of a crate digger, you know, had she been born 40 years later than, you know, when she was born. So um, I'll say that she judged her records on like, uh, like Marty Clarewig art, like the guy that did the, the front cover to Bitches Brew and right, right. like uh, Thrust by... Yeah, Herbie Herbie, Hancock, yeah, like those. If there's like really eclectic uh, art on the cover, and she'd be like, mm, "This must be good because the art, 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 because the cover is good." Right. So she was just into funk and really hip jazz, and so she contributed that. And then my sister Dawn, uh, I guess, in an attempt to really socially mesh in in her uh, grade school um, life, she was sort of uh, adapting 
and adjusting to the music that her girlfriends were into in grade school. So Dawn is bringing home um, David Bowie. Right. You know, she's bringing home the 45 to Bohemian Rhapsody. You know, she she's she's listening to uh, Physical Graffiti by Led Zeppelin, oh. you know. But she's also into, like, it's kind of weird. Like, my sister and my father are so much alike in their musical taste. Like, Dawn loved Yacht Rock. So, you know, uh, just, like, Doobie Brothers and oh, yeah. Kenny Loggins. Like, a lot of that soft, Captain and Tennille, like, a lot of that soft rock that we dub as, as Yacht Rock. And the, the most important element there's two most imp- there's two very important elements in this in this equation. Number one, I lived in a don't touch my stereo household. Right, right. So I didn't have the freedom. Like now, if it was left up to me, then yeah, I just listened to Bill Withers and the Jackson Five all day and take off their their records. But I wasn't allowed to touch the stereo, so thus I have to listen to all these records. And then on top of that, I wasn't allowed to watch television. So music was all I had. So there's about 3,000 records in the household. And I'm taking it all in. So um, by the time, and I'm taking it in in a very natural, uh, a very natural way. Like, you know, like the, the respect and the, the love I have for a James Brown now or Marvin Gaye now, I didn't have back then. I was eye rolling, like, oh man, this is like my dad's music. Like, I hate it. Like, I listen to James Brown, and, you know, it would be like, he screams a lot. He's funny. That sort of thing. I wasn't listening to, like, the messages of Curtis Mayfield. I'm like, wait, he just said the word nigger. You know what I mean? Like, that sort of thing. (laughs) Um, And really, it wasn't until, I'll say the, 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 the moment where I really started to discover how this could help me was through my cousin. My cousin and I were having a a, a sort of Lauren Hardy-esque who's on first conversation about the song Rapture by Blondie. Yeah. And he's trying to tell me, he's like, yo, man, you hear that new song? Like, I hear him singing. He's spending the night at the crib, and he's singing to myself. He's singing to himself, flat five, fatty, everybody style. Like he's singing the verse of Deborah Harry that she does on Rapture, but he's like, he's saying, flash is fast, flash is fast, flash is fast, flash is fast, flash is cool. Right, and I'm right. like, yo, why do you keep repeating yourself on that part? He said, because that's how the song goes. And I, it, that used to drive me crazy. Like if you wanted to drive me crazy in the house, all you had to do was sing something off key or sing something in a way that wasn't how it was on the record. Because what you also have to understand and your listeners, I'm, I'm thinking no, like I grew up in a musical household. They did that for a living. Like my dad was still doing his nightclub act. So we would binge, we would binge shop every two weeks and buy like, you know, 75 new albums and, and 100 new 45s 
um, from the local record store. And my dad's band would have to rummage through it and be like, okay, well, we like the theme from Slot, SWAT uh, by, like, uh, by Rhythm Heritage. Um, we don't quite understand Parliament Funkadelic. So whatever the band didn't want to learn, then I kept. So, you know, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't know if they had the chops to be doing Boogie Nights or like the Groove Line by Heat Wave. So Amir's record. Um, but they loved I Wish by Stevie Wonder. So, oh man, they, they, you know, so they kept Salt <laughs> in the Key of Life. Right. So, you know, like, and that's also another thing. Like, you know, all these records are coming in the house because my dad and my mom used them for the family nightclub act when they performed. And so, um, you know, back to my cousin and I'm like, it doesn't go that way. And so I, I sing to him the way that it's done on Rapture. And finally the, the who's on first of it all is the fact that maybe like 35 minutes later, I realized that he's singing me the adventures of Grandmaster Flash on the wheels of steel. Right. Right. And so like, I think we were outside and someone had it on a boom box and I, I was like, wait a minute. He's like, this is what I'm trying to tell you. See how it goes. And I heard flash is fat, flash is fast. Flash. And I was like, yo, how come my version doesn't do that? And then once I realized like, oh, the sound of scratching and all those things, he's trying to explain to me like, yeah, like when you take the record and you rub it and chicka, 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 that's what happens. And then that's where the punishment, the musical punishment stage of my life starts. Cause yeah, then yeah. <laughs> I'm waiting until the house is clear. I'm sneaking on the stereo and I'm like, so if I do this, like, so then that part of my life starts and then, you know, cut to high school. Uh, by 1986, like sampling technology is in its primitive stages but I'm starting to realize that, yo, Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince are like that particular horn line is one of dad's James Brown records. Right. And I'm showing my friends like, that's what that is. And then like, this is what that is. And wait, that's a Marvin Gaye song from Trouble Man. I know that song. So it, it, it slowly evolved into like a name that tune thing and then by the time public enemy came out then it was like oh i think i want to do this for a living and you were playing were you playing drums along with the records and stuff like that like did you have the kit in the yeah house um yeah my my drumming career you know when i when i was born uh my birth doctor was also studying to be a child psychologist and you know, he was like a hippie and really into like how the brain works and you know, very, di- not very different than your, your typical um, pediatrician and also being a fan of my father's work in the fifties. Um, my birth doctor was really obsessed with how epigenetics work and epigenetics is like, um, the the study and the process of what traits do we pick up from our family lineage, 
So it's like, like for you, Kras, like if you have kids, then it's more than likely that your kids are probably going to have some sort of musical talent. Right. Just based on epigenetics alone, you know, whereas like, um, if someone comes from a, a family where like, you know, temper might be a problem, then that epigenetics might trans uh, translate into them as well. So he was really curious to see how these things would work out. And so the one thing he told my mom during her like her regular visits was, you know, when he's born, I want you to let him be creative. And she's like, what do you mean? And he's like, yeah, like, you know, like if he plays in his food or if he draws on the walls, like he's naming all the things that your typical black household would frown upon. Yeah, yeah. If you ever did, you know, I come from a world of plastic couch covering. <laughs> you know, at your yeah, grandma's yeah. house, and of course, you know, yeah. don't you dare, like that sort of thing. And so, but you know, my parents are listening to my doctor. Like he's expressing his creativity, so let him explore. Like he was like, by the ages of zero to four, you got to teach him how to think and how to create for himself. And, you know, if you restrict him and say no, then that side of his brain might shut down and, and, you know, he might not be as intelligent or fully evolved as a human being. Like he said some really deep thing that, like, that really like got to my parents. Like, no, we like, wait, you let your kid draw on the wall like that. Well, you know, they, they, they explained that the left side of his brain, like my parents fell for it, like hook, line, and sinker. So the one thing that I was doing was like beating all the household appliances. I would just hit anything. Yeah. So it was quite obvious I was going to be a drummer by the age of two. Right, right. And um, so it went from pots and pans and like uh, hidden furniture to... Um, to them finally saying like, okay, well, one, let's save our furniture. Two, let's get them a bongo and see what happens. And so then I just hit the bongo 24-7. And then by the age of three, I got my first like toy drum kit, like a little, it's like a little Liverpool set, like right. a, a, a toy Ringo kit. Um, and then in 1979, no, Christmas of 1978, um, one of my dad's drummers just went AWOL and basically I got his drum set, um, for Christmas and like, there's no feeling in the world, like waking up out of your bed and walking downstairs and you see your drum set in the living room, like at the Christmas tree. Yeah, that's a huge moment. I'm eight years old and, you know, but little did I also know that, ah, now I got to practice. So I think kids in the beginning, like they're on fire and they, you know, they put all their energy into it. And then it's like, nope, you have to practice. So I'll say that from eight to 18, um, from eight to eighteen, I probably put in about two to five hours every day of my life drumming. From eight to eighteen, 
And did that, did, was that like playing with records? Was that how you learned or were you, were you freestyling? Yeah. Um, yeah. I had a, uh, I had a portable eight track. Okay. I'm really dating myself with my age. So I hope that your <laughs> listeners, I really hope that your listeners, your listeners might have to have uh, a, an extra phone so they can Google all these terms. Right. Right. Um, my, my first piece of machinery was like a, an eight track tape player. Um, which didn't have fast forward or re- rewind capabilities. So you had to live with the song. And I also think that's the most important element of all. Like I absorbed songs completely. Like I didn't have the free will to be like, mm, I don't like this part. So let me skip ahead. No, right, right. like I had to, when I listened to an album, I, I had to listen to an album completely in a circle. If I liked that one part, I just listened to it. And then I waited another 43 minutes for it to come around again when it, when it played all over. So, um, by this point I'm drumming in the basement with headphones, uh, with the a track, uh, tape player along with, um, I mean, at the time I was practicing to kind of, uh, I guess you can say the contemporary music of the day, um, the Commodore's live album, um, mastering one of the, one of the weirdest things was, uh, mastering the Jackson shake your body down to the ground, which I later realized was, um, uh, veteran drummer Ed Green playing three different parts at, at uh, simu- simultaneously, right? Uh, separately, sorry. Oh, so yeah, um, he he overdubbed them. Yeah, yeah, he overdubbed it. But you know, me thinking that it was just one track, like me learning that. Same with Prince in seven 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 ninety three eleven. But um, yeah, so from like seventy eight till about eighty two. It was like free will, like I would just tape songs off the radio and then take that cassette into the basement and play to them. Um, And then I discovered Prince. And at the same time, my parents discovered Christianity. (laughs) That's an interesting combination. So in 83, I discovered Prince, and they discovered Christianity. Wow. So instantly, yeah, like uh, the kind of church I went to, kind of a fire and brimstone Southern Baptist, not Southern Baptist, but like a Pentecostal church. But one particular Sunday, they decided to do like a sermon on like, watch what your kids listen to. Oh. And um, they did this thing where it was like... Uh, you know, they thought that Thriller, the video, was endorsing the uh, worship and the occult and, like, that sort of thing. And then, like, who else could they throw down the rabbit hole? So they threw down, like, Prince and all those things. So, like, 
they're holding up the 1999 record cover in church. And then they're like, and if you turn it upside down, you see the numbers 666 and a penis. And my mom's looking at me like, wait, I've seen that record in your bedroom. You have that record, don't you? Uh, no. And then like, <laughs> so then that starts the next, you know, from like 13 to 18, the, the print, the purple punishments. So, you know, they go home, take my entire Prince record collection, break them in half, throw them in the ca- trash. But then like, you know, winter, I go out and shovel some snow earn about 40 bucks and then buy those records all over again. Right. And then they discovered under the bed, break them. I'm on punishment. And then I just do some other odd job and then buy it all over again. And that was, you know, to, to, to get a Prince record successfully in that household without being found out was just like, it's like contraband, yo. And (laughs) that's really funny. And it's like, but, you know, he was speaking a whole nother language that that I was like, uh, I was into. And it was amazing to me. And my parents hated it. So that's yeah, my drumming history. Did your dad ever like come around to Prince? Did he ever see any of the, the good in it? Nah. I mean, to nah, be honest yeah. with you, um, I mean, as of the speaking, I will have done about 20 hours of Prince DJing um, on the air. I think that this is probably the first time that my mom and I sort of just coexisted on a normal level with Prince. I mean, as I became an adult, like, you know, we'd laugh about those things, but you know, in the beginning it was like hard as hell. Like, you know, then me coming home and, you know, seeing like a, a broken under the cherry moon uh, cassette, you know, on the kitchen table, and me trying to figure out like what punishment am I going to have to endure? Like, is this another three weeks without going out because I broke the family rules? But that's kind of just how it was. Um, you know, like anybody that was a teenager or in their twenties in the sixties and free. And Lord knows what they were doing in the 70s. I think everyone's general, by the time like Reagan came into office and introduced this like this narrative of, you know, getting back to American values and all those things and conservatism, um, you just have a slew of people that um, turned Christian and sort of turned their, their their backs on the life that they used to live beforehand. Like before then they were like very hip, uh, kind of like part hippie, part militant, very hip black folk. And then we became like the black version of the Flanders on the Simpsons, like very conservative, you know, yeah, it's a crazy and, uh, shift in that era. Yeah, so that's basically, you know, that was my musical journey, like as far as like delving into records. Um, and then by the time Public Enemies, it, it Takes a Nation of Millions came out, all those records and all that knowledge was contextualized in that one record. 
And then um, I happened to meet my my partner, Tariq Trotter, on the second day of school. Uh, weird enough, he was getting suspended on the second day of school. It's like, who gets suspended <laughs> on the second day of school? But, um, you know, we were both in the principal's office. I was in the principal's office to get uh, my school ID to get some free tokens. And he was in the principal's office because he was messing around with some girl in the bathroom or something. Right, and got yeah. caught. And we're just sitting on the bench together. And, you know, through me, he discovers that I'm like a walking jukebox. Yeah. So he says to me, like, wait, you know how to play Straight Out the Jungle by the Jungle Brothers? And in my head, I'm like, no, that's Kissing My Love by Bill Withers. You know, right. so it's like we're speaking the same language, but he knows it as what it was sampled. And I know it as what the sample was. And um, and I'm still serving two gangs, Wick McBride and DeFrancesco and Rosenwinkle. But then I'm sneaking by on both their backs and trying to figure out how to make a history with, with Tariq. And Tariq was rapping at that point already. Like he was making music. Tariq was definitely rapping. I yeah. mean, Tariq's true gift. I mean, Tariq's true gift was comedy. I mean, he was an art major, but Tariq, his his freestyle ability probably had to do with the fact that he had to think so quick on his feet. And right. when it came time to play in the dozens and all those things, like I think, I think there's something that you learn as a child that serves you well in order to survive. Like, you know, Richard Pryor says that um, he would use humor and comedy as a means to not be bullied in his childhood home. So it's like, if Richard Pryor was funny, then that kept your mind off of trying to hurt him uh, growing up in Illinois. So even he said, even when he went to jail, he made sure that he had them all laughing in the prison, uh, you know, in the jail to keep him from messing with him. And I think like where Tariq grew up, you had to think quick on your feet and real time. And so there's a chamber in his brain that has to think, you know, six steps ahead. So even when he's rhyming and open up a chamber of words, like, you know, he'll rhyme a particular word. He'll he'll know the like the next fifteen words that rhyme with that one word. You know what I mean? Like yeah, that's yeah, how his yeah. brain works. Yeah. So I met him like playing the dozens at the lunch table, but freestyling. And I never seen nobody like rhyme in real time and talk about how someone's holes in their shoes was showing and how he could see the 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 meatball stains on <laughs> the polo shirt that he just ate for lunch or whatever. Like Tariq could play the dozens and make fun of somebody and rhyme it. Right. And so um, what gained me access to the cool kids table was that, you know, you had to learn how to drum a beat on the table. So, you know, it went for me doing, you know, my knuckles on the lunchroom table to, um, I'll say in the Christmas of 88, every 
music household invested in the Casio SK1 keyboard. Oh yeah. Which had like like one and a half seconds or maybe like two seconds of sampling time on it. Yep. Um and that's from, you know, seeing the the famous Stevie Wonder Cosby show episode in which the Huxtable family winds up visiting Stevie Wonder in a studio and they hear what a sampler was for the first time. And then it's like everyone had to have one of those machines. And yeah. so there was a toy version of it. And, um, you know, that sampling entry for a lot of kids growing up. And um, I, too, had that machine. So I take it to school. And um, so now Tariq's like, all right, I want you to run to the basement and play kick the ball, which is like the headhunters got made me funky. Yeah, yeah. So I have to run downstairs to the basement for like, you know, for six freaking flights of stairs, drum a perfect four bar loop in two seconds, <laughs> which is hard to do. So you, you would have to play the break beat twice as fast. And then slow, you know, slow it down just to get a perfect four count. And then I had to run all the way up stairs to the lunchroom. And then two weeks, like, no, nah, no, nah, I want to do, uh, I want to do Raw by Big Daddy Kane. Like, come on, man, I'll run downstairs. And then I run downstairs to the basement where instrumental classes, and then do that break beat real quick, and then run back upstairs. And then I'd, you know, instead of eating my lunch, I was the breakbeat guy. I'd have to play that break while they just freestyled at the table. Really, the 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 cap of it all was that. Um, I mean, I've told the story before. I I went to school, um, also with a singer Amel Larue. Yep. And um, you know, the shortest version of the story was that we were in line waiting for tokens or something. And I heard her mention Prince and I was like, I got to interject myself in this conversation to impress her. So I interjected (laughs) myself, you know, in in a very awkward way, like in a way like the school dweeb, like goes up to the girls and, you know, they're like, Oh, get away. Like that sort of thing. Um, And then we were talking about a Prince song and then to keep the conversation going, I lied and said, yeah, you know, because we, we sampled that song last night at the, uh, at the studio. And then she's like, what studio? I was like, hey, who's we? And I was like, you know, we got a group. And she's like, who got a group? And Tariq just happened to be like in proximity with him and pointed to him. And, you know, it's just like, mm, okay, whatever. And then, like, I beeline to him, like, yo, if anybody asks you, we're a group, okay? <laughs> and and he just looked like, he's like, all right, cool. We're a group. <laughs> like, wow, with a shrug. Crazy. And literally, <laughs> and it was that's born how like we, that. That's funny. That's how we became a group. And so then, you know, like, the roots as you know it um, really truly developed. Um, I'll say like seven years later. I mean, that was 87. So by right. like 92, when I'm trying to go to college, um, I had an audition. McBride had chosen um, Juilliard because Miles went to Juilliard. Yep. 
I was like, all right, well, I'm going to audition for Juilliard too. Um, I had two auditions, either, either the new school and um, Juilliard. And so the weekend I went to do my, the Friday I went up to New York City, Tariq comes with me to do both my auditions. And um, on the way home from my auditions, this girl looks at me and was like, yo, you look like the guy from the Spike Lee uh, Levi's commercials that plays the buckets. Like, are you that guy? And, you know, I was like, no, I'm not that guy. And I was trying to let her know, but I am the guy in the Motown Philly video by Boys to Men, which I'm pretty sure that was like the blur. Like, you know, my hairstyle was new at the time. Nobody was like twisting their hair. <laughs> Yeah, and all those things, and I was dressed like way different than anyone should be dressed in Philadelphia. Um, so cut to we were crashing out in the living room of my family house, and then the next morning, Saturday, Soul Train comes on, and that Spike Lee commercial comes on. Me and Tariq look at each other like, "Yo, don't we do that?" Like, oh, there's the bucket commercial, like the, the Levi's commercial yeah, comes on yeah. and he's playing buckets. It's like, yo, why don't we do that? So then literally the next day, I mean, not the next day, four hours later, like we snuck some buckets and pans and out of the house, went to South Street. And next thing you know, like we made 40 bucks. So it's like, right, right. yo, we're rich. And then the next day we did it on Sunday and we made another 40 bucks. And then, you know, next week it's like, like if we didn't make that 40 bucks, then I don't think we're going back next week. But then like I told my boy in this, like uh, this jazz program I was in called settlement music school. He's a bass player named uh, Josh Abrams. Yep. Yep. I know. And um, Josh is like, so you guys going to do it again? And I was like, yeah, I think we are. He's like, well, can I play bass? Yeah, you play bass. And so he comes by my crib. He has a station wagon. And so I'm bringing the buckets outside. He's like, well, wait, bring your real drums, yo. Like, don't bring your buckets. And I bring my drums out. And that's essentially, I mean, that summer, every Saturday, that's the story of the roots. Like, we just set up on, we busked for five to six hours every Saturday on the street corners. Um, made at least under $100 worth of change to divide amongst three people, sometimes four, um, and always someone there to offer us a gig, like play my kegger, play my poetry slam, Yeah, you know. And we were gained entry and access to these nightclubs that um, – rap groups weren't even given an invitation to. So that gave us the advantage. Like, well, these guys play instruments. So, you know, that would like help and hurt us. That right, would help us right, to get right. us gigs. Right. But then it would hurt us because it was like, oh, you guys aren't like a real rap group. So we get underestimated. And so just the summer of 92, that's all we did. And then um, we met our management at the time who then slowly morphed it into you know, well, why don't we do a demo? And then a demo became like 12 inch and then 12 inch became an EP. And then next thing you know, like we've made 18 songs and then that becomes our demo organics, which leads to a record deal, which it's, it's never stopped since. Right. 
And Do You Want More came out, what, a year or so after that? That's like 95? Yeah, Do You Want More was technically completed. Um, so like all of 92 and early 93 was like Organics Times and and uh, and also like record uh, kind of uh, uh, showcase audition time. Got into a bidding war, heavy uh, all of '93, and then by October of '93, in in the strangest hail mary throw ever, uh, we wind up on Geffen Records uh, in October of '93. So then, by December of '93, we're in the studio recording. What you know is, do you want more? And um, in April of 94, uh, the death of Kurt Cobain sort of paradigm shifts our entire future. Right. Uh, the morning that he commits suicide, now he's our label mate and also like kind of the, the, the poster child of the grunge movement and really one of the successful reasons why we, they were able to have such an expansive budget. You know, this is a label of guns and roses, Nirvana, Aerosmith. So these bands are like selling like 10 million units each of their record. So Kevin's like, yeah, we can start a black department with all this over uh, overhead money we got. And, um, the morning he, uh, killed himself. um, my manager was like, yo, I think this could affect us and we could get dropped. Right. And I was like, well, what do we do? And there was like, and he was like, we, we set in motion a, a, a two week plan that literally saved our lives. So, I mean, he called an emergency meeting. Like, the, I mean, the body's not even warm yet. And an hour later, it's like everyone at Sigma Studios now. And we go to Sigma, and he's like, this is what we're up against. This boy just committed suicide, and I'm afraid that they're going to drop us because now Aerosmith isn't on the label no more, and Guns N' Roses ain't going to turn in no new record no time soon, and now their cash cow done killed himself, and that's over for the rock grunge movement. And we're going to be fucked. So we better hurry up and do this record and get out of here. And the plan was literally, I guess in our own time, we would have been done probably the album by like June. But he was like, no, we got to get done now. So I'll say in the next four days, we knocked off like six songs. In the next three days, we probably mixed them all like, Bob Power mixed some, then we went to another studio, mixed some, and then we spent two days working on remixes for three of the songs that we felt should be singles, and then we spent another four days shooting videos for three of these songs, and then we shot the album cover and our promo picks. Uh, the last day, we engineered and sequenced everything 14 days later. And then in a very weird 
uh, Whoopi Goldberg in ghost type way, we go to the bank to close down our budget. Like the way that our budget was, it was very unusual. Like normally you would have a label and an A&R person handle all of the, the, the bills and stuff, but there was no staff. So they actually trusted us to, to handle those things. Okay, guys, here's the credit cards. Don't don't go crazy. Save all your receipts and da 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 blah blah blah. blah. Your expense reports. So we came in way under budget, and by the time the album was done, there was a couple hundred thousand dollars left. And my manager was like, "Yo, that's our money." So let's just so instead of doing the thing where like you turn in the records and you turn the tapes in, and then in some timely fashion they'll finally like give you that money. He's like, nope. We went to the bank, emptied out those accounts, and then purchased eight one-way tickets to London, England. Wow. And he was like, we're going to pull a Hendrix. And just on faith, man, just on faith. We we flew to London. We had our, we had our, our agent book us like two gigs at uh, the Jazz Cafe. <laughs> yep, yep. And the plan was make these one-way tickets, and then by day one, by day number one, we will find a flat or an apartment that can accommodate seven people, and we're just going to live in London. Then we're going to get an agent, and that agent is going to have us work all over Europe. Like We're going to use London as our hub. And then we will just live in Europe and play any and every gig. And that's what happened. And you, you guys had music out over there already at that point? It was Organics was out there? So, okay, Organics, Organics, there, there's a, 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 when I said that Hail Mary pass with yeah, Geffen. Yeah, yeah. We were supposed to, the way that the record deal happened was that, you know, we did all these, all these showcases and got a bit more. And we decided that we were going to go record for Mercury, Polygram. Black Sheep was on that label. And, you know, they gave us a nice offer. The shortest story of that was that um, three of the names were misspelled on the contracts that were being sent out. Right, right. And because of that mistake, that that left a four-day window uh, because it was on a weekend that left a four day window. Like it was Thursday, discovered the mistake on a Friday. They were like, okay, well, we'll, we'll resend you the contracts on Monday. And, um, last minute, um, Geffen came in with this ungodly offer that we couldn't refuse. And, uh, and we took it like, and had to explain to Mercury, like, okay, so what had happened was, uh, during the weekend, and one of the things was that we had already made a connection with Giles Peterson, who was very instrumental. Uh, Giles Peterson is is like one of the most influential DJs uh, from from uh, London, from the yep. BBC, yep, the worldwide radio show. Like he was playing organics. He he pressed up. He took the CD and and pressed up uh, bootlegged a copy of it so he could DJ it in the clubs, and. Um, you know, he was excited to, he wanted to be the one that broke us open and, uh, 
Europe. So even with us going to Geffen, he begged, like, can we please, please, please still organize something so that I can still make this EP happen? So we released an EP called From the Ground Up on a one-off on on Talking Loud Polygram. And that was still out at the time. And then, you know, Do You Want More was supposed to come out in June, but we didn't have a staff. And then it was like, well, let's do it in October. So eventually it came out in like January of 1995, but that album should have came out like in June of 1994, but we weren't ready at the time. Right, right. Yeah, and so that's, you know, spending spending two years living in London, traveling all over Europe, and then working every night in, in clubs and honing our skills. Like, that's how we got our show together. So by the time we came back to the States, you know, it's like being in the gym training for the Olympics. And by the time we came back to the States um, to tour, like, with the Beastie Boys and really start, like, working on America, you know, we, we've been a very well-oiled machine. And was Scott Storch in the band during that time? Or was that Kamal yet? He was, but he yeah. didn't want to tour with us at the time because he was doing like a lot of studio work. Was he? But he wasn't with y'all in Europe? No. Okay. So by that point, um, our keyboard player, Kamal, just graduated high school and he became our keyboard player. Right, right. So Kamal was like fresh out of graduation, 17-year-old. That's how he became the group. You know, playing every festival, every empty bar, mostly to the staff and then like you come back and then like word done spread. And now it's like, you know, now it's a hundred people in the nightclub and then word done spread. And now it's, you know, it's 900 people and then word done spread. And, uh, that buzz is what really kept us alive and going because, you know, all the rich was correct. Like all the other groups besides the jizz from the Wu-Tang clan, got signed and got dropped subsequently because of that fallout with, you know, Guns N' Roses and Nirvana and Aerosmith. And they kept us because like, well, these guys have an incredible buzz. They did the work on their own. Right. And it was that sort of intuition that also helped us around the time when like things fall apart came out where we started organizing jam sessions in my living room where, you know, your commons, your Erica Badus, your D'Angelo's, your Kendrick, the family soul, your Bilal's, your music soul child, your Eve, your Beanie Siegel's, um, your, 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 your 10 year old Jasmine Sullivan, right. your, you know, like your India Irees, like literally the next generation of like, what will be known as the neo soul movement of like 2000 to 2003 talent, but also putting people together. now is that something that your dad did too? Like, were you sitting in on, on his uh, band rehearsals and stuff and like seeing how he was putting things together? Mm, always sitting in on the rehearsals. That's a, this is a trick that we learned when we went to London, there was a club called Iceni. Right. And every Saturday night, they would have these jam sessions. And it was like the greatest thing ever. You know, like musicianship really took a dive for America like 1977. 
And it's been like diminished returns ever since. And, you know, when we went to London, it was like, yo, cats still come to the nightclub to play music and it's, it's dope. And then it was like, yo, we got to bring this vibe back to the States. So the second we got back to the States, it was like, yo, we got to do just like I seen it. Yeah. So, you know, we got a house, got a whole bunch of equipment, um, got the world's best chef uh, in Philadelphia to cook. And that enticed, that's really what enticed uh, everyone to my house. Like, wait, Chef Terry from Zanzibar Blue, the jazz club is cooking in Mayor's house? Hell yeah, yeah I'm coming. And then they were there every week. But it's like, you know, then it's like, yo, can my homegirl come? Like, oh, you, the girl from like uh, that, that works at uh, that blue denim, like Gilly Jeans on on South Street. Oh, my girl Jill. And then, you know, an unknown Jill Scott comes, an unknown Jaguar Wright comes. And, uh, you know, like all these unknowns. And then, like, suddenly, like, oh, it's. This is my homegirl, Marsha. She's from London. Like, she heard about the vibe here. She wants to see what's up. So then it's like Marsha Ambrosius and, and right, right. Floetry. And, and literally, like, people think I'm joking. Music Soul Child worked at the pizza parlor. Like, after <laughs> the food's done, then it's like, all right, we got to do another order. Like, you know, pony up for pizza money. That's and he's the pizza guy. So instantly in my head, I'm thinking like, oh, this has already jumped the shark. Now right. uh, this is what's up, y'all. We're letting the pizza guy sing on the microphone now. Like everybody's just showing in the microphone. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you got Tariq's you got Tariq's friends like I mean, you got Beanie and, and Freeway and all those guys like putting their blunt ashes out on my carpet, but now the pizza guy gotta sing. Right, right. And now this damn ten year olds <laughs> in my household like singing. That's like, hilarious. Really, like, we just letting kids up on the microphone like it's a talent contest now. So at some point, I thought it run its course because it's like, yo, all all these freaking these regular ass people. Like in my mind, I was like, okay, well, D'Angelo and Q Tip and Erica, like my peers, are going to be here at this thing. Yeah, and then it just wound up being like the local talent show. But you know, my manager Rich was like, yo, dude, like if we just be consistent with this. Everybody here can get deals. And sure enough, in about three weeks, I mean, three years, yeah. suddenly, literally everyone in that living room, you know, Eve broke out, yeah. Beanie broke out, yeah. like everyone broke out from those jam sessions. And it, it, literally the reason why it stopped is because there was no one left. Right, right. Like the last half of that was just, well, okay, all the artists are going, but the musicians are still here. And this is when like Adam Blackstone was like 16 years old. Yeah. And like Omar Edwards was, was, was 17. So like you got these like these kids that are like gravitating towards us and now they're playing instruments. And then suddenly they're like everyone's MD right now. Right, right. So, like, once there was no more musicians left, then that's why I had to stop because literally, like, there was no more music left at all. And was Rich like helping facilitate a lot of these things? Was he kind of oh the man, Rich saw through? Yeah. Like, again, in my hands, it would have been over. Like, once things fall apart came out, then it's like, okay, well, we got what we wanted, guys. Thank you. Right. Like, we got these songs. All right, uh, you know, just don't. You know, watch yourself on the way out. 
And the jam sessions were all happening kind of during the creation of that album, if things fall apart? Absolutely. Right. Like, Al grew my living room, and then we started doing it at Wetlands in New York and at the Five Spot in Philly. Yeah. And Rich's whole thing was like, well, no, even when you guys go on tour, I'm still keep these jam sessions happening. And then that's how it morphed into Black Lily. Yeah, Black Lily, right? And then it just happened, you know, and it went on, I think the last days of Black Lily was like 2005. But we never stopped the jam session. And even then, like, we would do like the Grammy jam. But yeah, essentially, that's how it happened. I want to thank Questlove for being on the show today. Again, that was part one. And it was great hearing about the history of the roots. There's a lot more to come. We get into the Soul Quarians, D'Angelo, how they got the gig with Jimmy Fallon, and a lot more. So definitely tune in next week. Right now, I'd like to play a song off of the Roots album, Do You Want More? This was one of the first tracks I ever heard by the Roots, and I was instantly a fan, especially hearing the live instrumentation with the MC done the way they do it. Just really stood out to me, and uh, I've been a fan ever since. This one is called Proceed. What if you could just just blink yourself away? Just think. What if you could just just blink yourself away? Jeff X could rock the mic with tooth decay. I be the five foot seven, residing at the Mecca rest address in South Section. Used to cut class in the infinite pursuit of ass back in '86. Easy with the chicks, I was a chocolate boy, raised in the cellar with the rhythm like Ella. Walk the mega type streets to the subway where I lay till the train stopped. Then a nigga hop hot Used to do the pop dance to the planet rock At the block party, everybody jock Who, me? me? It's the MC, sucker niggas envy I got my contract in 1993 And I shall pull I up Proceed to rock the mic I shall Proceed to rock the mic In the morning, I mean early after early after. Break a lyrical him off the stem like boom. I'm flying when I die. You put this shit up on my tomb. That nigga represented on the 28th of June. I'm representing Philly on the 28th of June. I can make you feel that I'm a surreal car. Tune with my pistol in the face of hip hop. Sticking for bass because I'm on a paper chase. I'm on a paper chase. My Timberlands are fully laced. I be the Mr. Boogie Man. With records from 125th to Japan. I laid and play like Donnie Hathaway and shake a hand, shake a hand. Your lady tried to kick you, but I couldn't play my man My niggas is my niggas, and she didn't understand I shake your hand and shit and hit the fan Just think, just, just think, think, what, what if you could just Just, just blink, blink, what, blink yourself away as I push Proceed, and continue to rock the mic I shall Proceed, and continue to rock the mic I shall Proceed, and continue to rock the mic Proceed and continue to rock the mic. Malik, get on the mic, yo, it's too much on my mind. Malik, get 
move the mic, it's too much on my mind. Johnny on the spot, got the rhythm in the rhyme. Fucking with the roots, you know them niggas is a dime. I can make a hundred yard line start to dash. I can make a whole lake of fish start to splash. I can make Conan in the Titans class. And I can make Metallica and Guns N' Roses thrash. Used to smash crash parties like I was disturbed. Used to make plots against the herringbone herb. But now, all I do disperse the verb And like a nerd, I can make you say He's superb, worded perfect Never ever shall you misinterpret I move styles like Bows And now you know I'm worth it Direct from Philly, the land where niggas scheme So you know I got that sheen in my gleam Krasno Plus One is hosted by me, Eric Krasno. Executive producers are RJB and Christina Collins. Audio production by Matt Dwyer. Produced by myself and Ben Baruch of 1111 Group. All original music is by me, and most of which are instrumentals from my album, Telescope, under the artist name Kras. This podcast is presented by Osiris Media. If you'd like to get in touch with us, email krasplus1 at gmail. That's K-R-A-Z-P-L-U-S-O-N-E at gmail.com. Send me some questions. Maybe I'll answer them on air. Send me suggestions of other guests you'd like to hear on the show. Thanks again for tuning in. I'll see you next time.